Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. There's an old story of two sports buffs discussing what heaven will be like. And one of them asks the other, do you think there will be golfing in heaven? And he's told quite certainly, no, absolutely not. Why? Because there's no lying in heaven. But there is good news, he continues. There will be baseball. How do you know that for a fact, asks the first one. The second one says, it says so right in the Bible. In fact, it's so important. It's the very first words. It says, in the big inning. And in a way, the story of the Bible, indeed the story of history, is one of beginnings and endings. Beginnings and endings, beginnings and endings, and so on. Even in re recent history, we have an example of this. We're living it right now. Some nine months, some uh, a year and three or four months ago, life as we knew it came to an abrupt end as we got introduced to words like COVID and cohort and compliance. I'm sure you'll join with me in hoping that this era is about to end and a new beginning is awaiting us. Yeah, that's worth a honk. And that's exactly where we find ourselves today in our journey through the book of Matthew in chapter 3. It's going to become obvious to you as we walk through this series that we're not going to be able to spend the time to dissect every verse, but rather we're relying on the Holy Spirit to guide us into where he wants us to stop. And frankly, as you read and follow along yourself, we'll ex expect the same of you, that the Holy Spirit will remind you where to stop and do the same. Ends and beginnings. That's where we find ourselves today. And in the first sentence, we're introduced to an important figure who has already gained himself a nickname. He's known as John the Baptist. So a word or two about his background. Last week, Matthew let us in on the big secret. Something is afoot in Israel. The first Christmas has come. Jesus has been born, but it's still pretty quiet out there. For 400 years, in fact, Israel has been quiet. The nation of God's people have been waiting to hear something from God. They tried hard to hold on to their faith, but the echo of God's promises of the Messiah coming that started back in the book of Genesis are now growing faint and sometimes pretty hard to hear. Perhaps this promised king would never come and free them. These were long-suffering people under first Greek oppression and then Roman rule. They were in despair in God's silence for 400 years, but things are about to change. For a moment, we're going to let the other Gospels inform us a bit about John the Baptist and his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. About all we know from Scripture is that they were well advanced in years, were godly people, and were unable to have children. But an angel appears to Zechariah one day and says, that prayer that you have prayed from your heart for so many years is about to be answered. You and Elizabeth are going to have a child. But I need to let you know something else. This, this child you're going to have, from the outset, he's going to be set apart for a purpose. You will need to let go of your agenda for him. 
In those days, what that meant, being set apart, was this child will not follow in your footsteps, nor give you grandchildren, nor support you in your old age, which was important back then. You will have to let go of all of your agenda in favor of another agenda. Later on in this story, when Elizabeth, who is pregnant now with John, meets the mother of Jesus, Mary, who was also pregnant at the time with Jesus. And the Bible says that when the two of them met, John leapt inside his mother's womb. Luke, the writer of that passage, wants us to know, wants us to understand from the very beginning that John's joy was in being close, in being with Jesus. John's whole life would be about fulfilling another agenda. He had taken a vow to let go of a normal life. He would not cut his hair or taste wine. He would wear only certain rather itchy, scratchy, rough and lowly clothes made of camel hair. His staple foods would be yummy locusts and honey. He lived in isolation rather than community. He let go of his plans for his life, a marriage, a family, and he did exactly that. In the midst of all that letting go, as if that wasn't enough, God asks him one more thing. And, at, and day after day, year after year, John the Baptist did what was, he was called to do by the banks of the Jordan River. His first words recorded by Matthew are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God called John to preach repentance. Repentance at its roots means to do a 180. It means to turn away from the wrong direction you're going in and instead turn around 180 degrees and go the right way. But there's another level to it that John captures in a few moments later when he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Another Bible translation for the same verse says, prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. We might say it like the proof of your repentance is in the pudding. For if you get convicted over and broken by and confess your sin, but you're not serious about actually doing a 180 and leaving it behind, your relationship with God is going to grow distant. It's inevitable in any relationship where there's undealt with junk. You keep Jesus at a distance because when you get too close to him, it gets too convicting, too costly, too humbling, or you let all that pass by because you consider yourself somehow to have inherited your faith, your favor with God. <clears throat> Some of the super elite religious and political types are at the Jordan this day. And when they get up to John... He wishes them such a wonderful, happy day. No, he doesn't. In a phrase that Jesus himself would later use to these same people, he says, you brood of vipers, you snakes. You think that because you're descendants of Abraham, that you have a cordial relationship with God and you've got your ticket to the kingdom of heaven automatically punched because of that? Think again, you need to repent. And churches are infamous for having buildings that are full of people who are distant and cordial with God. But that's not us, is it? So I'm asking you, when God brings you to a point of real change in your life, don't say no. Don't say no to God. Saying no to God is what gets us into trouble in the first place. Saying no to God is what gets us into relationship difficulty. Saying no to God is what creates all the problems and hurts and feelings and misunderstandings that we encounter. If God has brought you finally to the place where you're ready to change 
And finally, to get it right, don't say no. Instead, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. True repentance is recognized in a changed life to the bearing of a different kind of fruit. We know what kind of fruit that is. It leads to love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Authentic repentance is recognized not because it involves heavy emotion, although sometimes it will. It's recognized not because it involves great pain, although sometimes it does. Authentic repentance is recognized in people whose lives are changed and now live the kind of life that Jesus would live. They become loving, fruit-filled, fruitful people. So then walking down into the warm waters, John baptized those who responded to his message, those who were ready to listen to God and say yes. Baptism was symbolic of the cleansing that repentance had brought into their lives. It was a very public statement of where their faith lay. And as you can imagine, there were people standing by taking names because they were declaring their allegiance to someone other than Rome. More about that, more about baptism in a few weeks. And by the way, if you're interested, just go to our website. We're planning a baptism class in just a few weeks. Please go there and sign up. One day, though, as John was lifting one of those he'd been baptizing out of the waters of the Jordan, he looked up and he saw Jesus. This may surprise some of you, but the Bible says without any doubt whatsoever, this day will happen to each of us as well, whether we like it or choose it or not. The whole point of John's message was choose to face Jesus now. You don't want to miss it when it's an option, you see, only to find out later that's what you should have done, but the option is no longer yours. Repent, John said, for the kingdom is at hand. You can enter the kingdom now. Choose now to look up and see Jesus. So what will John and his followers do now that they've come face to face with Jesus? It's one thing to talk the talk, but will they walk the walk? What would you do? Suddenly there's a whole new agenda in front of you. Not your plan anymore, but God's. The choice becomes clear. You either stick with your way or you let it all go and you go with God. When you're a parent, you think that the hard part of being a parent is going to be taking care of your kids, helping them to grow up, watching and protecting them. That's not the really hard part. Do you know what the really hard part is? It's letting go of them. It starts early. I can remember like yesterday when each of our sons started kindergarten. It's one of those tough times for the kids, but do you know who it's really traumatic for? <laughs> it's the parents, right? You think they're going to get bullied, be tempted, going to fail, be hurt sometimes, and that's just on the school bus. And I was the driver. There will be kids when they don't, there will be times when they don't get along with other kids. There'll be times when they get wounded by teachers who have different values and don't see all the potential of our little angels. You can't do a thing about it at that point in time. You just have to let them go. And then they get a little older. They get to be 16 years old. They get into a car all by themselves with the keys and they drive off. You have to let them go. You can still call your friends and warn them to get off the road, but you have to let them go. You have to do it. We obviously, Jenny and I, have two grown boys now. When they were growing up, the sun set, rose and set, the moon rose and set over their mom. The only woman in the world as far as they were concerned. But we knew someday girls were going to come along 
bat their baby blue and brown eyes at them and blow in their ears and they'd be gone gaga galloping off into the sunset with them and that's exactly what happened. There's an old story. You may have heard it before, but it illustrates this point so well. A guy falls off the side of a cliff. He's on his way down a sheer cliff face. He's going to die. He throws his hands out in desperation and by some miracle, his hand latches onto a branch that's protruding from the side of the cliff. He grabs onto it and holds on for everything he's got. He's suspended there halfway down the cliff and so he yells, is anybody up there? This voice comes and says, yes. And he says, who is it? And the voice says, it's God. And the, the guy says, oh, that's wonderful, God, save me. And the voice says, okay. And the guy says, well, well, what should I do? And the voice says, let go of the branch. There's a brief pause. The guy looks up and says, is there anybody else up there? This is what's been happening for John and his disciples. For one whole phase of John's life, the question is, does he have enough faith to hang on and prepare the way for the one to come? Can he keep preaching repentance in the face of opposition? But now... An even harder question comes up. His work is coming to an end. Does he have enough faith to let go? What about you? You've heard of the miracles of Jesus and what he's done, the wisdom of his teaching. You're going to hear more of it as we go through Matthew. His claim to be the promised Messiah who will save his people. You've heard that he's come to save people from the tyranny of sin in their own heart and that which enslaves them. Jesus has indeed come to conquer once and for all the greatest enemy, but it's not the enemy everyone thinks. It's the hold that the evil one has on us. The prison that we live in, the fear of death, the fear that we won't ever quite measure up to God's standards and be granted eternity in heaven with him. The fear that we haven't been washed clean enough to be sinless and thus be eligible for citizenship in heaven. We truly come face to face with who Jesus is and his agenda, and we have a decision to make. Can we let go of our own agenda in favor of the one that God now lays down in front of us? John the Baptist is at this crossroad. He looked up and saw a new agenda walking down the hill towards him, onto the shore, stepping into the water, walking out to where he was standing. Jesus himself walking right up to John. What would he do? If anybody deserved to be threatened at this point, it's John. But again, just as he'd done in his mother's womb, John's heart leapt for joy. He knew in that instant that all of the preparation, all of the letting go of his own agenda in favor of God's that he'd been asked to do was absolutely worth it. This was his joy. This was the one whom his ministry was all about. All the dusty days, all the dusty months and years that he had spent. The lone voice in the wilderness, raiding the people who now came for the one who now came down into the waters in front of him. The voice. He was the voice. He was the first voice in 400 years that came along proclaiming the good news that salvation was at hand. Messiah was coming. The promised one who would fill God's plan to restore mankind. He's coming so repent, let go of the things that you thought were so important and instead take hold of God. And now Jesus is here and John the Baptist practiced what he preached. He looked up and he said, look, 
Look, everyone, that's him. That's who I've been talking about. Behold the Lamb of, the God, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how he announces Jesus to everyone. He took hold of Jesus in the Jordan and dipped God's son into its muddy waters. And then he heard God's voice saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. John didn't miss it at all. He literally let go of his own agenda, held on to God's with both hands, figuratively and frankly, literally. What about you? One of the questions I want us to consider today is, do you have something that you need to let go of? I want to ask you to spend just a serious moment or two in reflection. What do I need to let go of? What's my agenda still and not God's? Just allow him to speak into your heart for just a moment here. Just ask the question, what is your agenda, God versus mine? It might be a relationship, relationship you're in with a friend, a child, or a spouse. You've been trying to make sure that relationship works out in a certain way. The truth is, you've been trying to control it or manipulate it according to your agenda, not God's. Today, you need to give up trying to control it, as scary as that is. It scares people to be on the side of the cliff and let go of the branch. But you need to let go. It's a question of trust, you see. It may be that there's a habit that's been part of your life for a long time. It's, it's your agenda. That's not God's. You need to let go of it. And frankly, today, that frightens you. It may be that you've been holding on to money to give you security, a kind of security blanket, a sense of importance, or because you're just in the thrill of getting more stuff. Maybe today, even right now, Jesus is speaking to you about the fact that we live in a needy world. He's calling you to let go of your death grip on money because the theme of letting go is deeply embedded in God himself. In his very being, God loves to give. Jesus speaks as one who has himself done this. He let go of power and glory in heaven in order to come to earth and become a human. He's willing to let go of everything, including his own life. He lets go of power. He doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He empties himself. He lets go. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Jesus didn't just happen to be walking by the Jordan River that day. He lived 90 kilometers away. He's walked 90 kilometers to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. It was in an intentional humbling of himself. And he asked all of his followers to obey him and be baptized as well. This marks an end and also a beginning. For a brief time, the ministries of John and Jesus parallel each other side by side. Slowly at first, and then much more obviously, people stop coming to John. They start following Jesus. His followers come to John, and they whisper in his ear, How come they're going to Jesus? That's not part of our plan. Do something, John. And John responds by saying some wonderful words. He says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said this. I've said this all along. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Look at the beautiful word picture now that John paints in the next verse. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him 
and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. You see, at a wedding in John's day, there was a special person who was known as the friend of the groom. We might make a transition and call him the best man, although there's more to this than that. They had a technical term for this person. He was the showspan. Showspan. He was the friend of the groom. He was in charge of many of the wedding arrangements, including sending out the invitations and accompanying the groom everywhere. And then he had a last task. Weddings in those days took days. On the final night of the wedding, after all the ceremony is over, the friend of the groom, the showspan, would stand guard over the tent where the bride waited for her groom. He would stand by the flap of that tent and make sure that no one entered but the groom. In the dark, you see, you couldn't see any person's face. When the groom came, the friend of the groom would hear his voice. He would be the one to know his friend's voice. He knew the groom's voice, so he would stand aside and let the groom enter the tent and have the joy of claiming his bride. The friend of the groom had another kind of joy. His joy was serving his friend. And this is the picture that John paints. That's my joy. I got to send out the invitations. John says to his disciples, I served the groom. He's my friend and he's come and I've heard his voice. Jesus is beginning the process of claiming his bride. The church and the people are his bride. They're not mine. The joy of the groom belongs to him. But John says to his disciples, don't think that this is painful for me. Don't be under that illusion. My joy is complete. Every time another person goes to Jesus, I'm a part of that. It's the bride with the groom, and that completes my joy. You know, I was thinking about that a lot this week. It kind of pictures where those of us are who have decided to be followers, disciples of Jesus. One day, collectively, we get to be the bride. We are the church. The bride that Jesus is coming to earth again to complete the process once and for all for and when he does, the Bible is very clear about this. There will be no missing him that time. The whole earth will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus has returned. Hallelujah. And the joy and the choice to follow him as an act of faith will be gone. But in the meantime, we get to be showspin. In the meantime, we get to be a little like John the Baptist too. Letting go of our own agenda so that we can be friends of the groom and serve him calling people to turn their hearts towards God and guarding his bride, the church, until he returns for her. And every time, every single time another person goes to Jesus, it's the bride with the groom. And that is complete joy. The last word on the subject from John says it all. He says about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. Understand John's meaning here. This is not a statement of a martyr. He's not saying, I guess I'll go eat worms and die. This is not an unhealthy devaluing of who God made him to be. This is a statement of joy. This is the joy of the friend who realizes the bride has now received her groom and that he had a part to play in it. This is John's participation in the kingdom of God. Do you know why December 25th was chosen as the date for Christmas? It's not because they thought that was historically the day that Jesus was born on. 
There, there's never been a time in history of the church when they have pegged the day when Jesus was born. It wasn't, however, chosen at random. It was chosen because that's the time of year, when you think about it, when the days start to become longer. The light increases every day, a little bit more every day. They chose that day as a reminder that this was the time when the light of the world had arrived. If you think about it, in the first century, there's no electric lights and not much in the way of alternate sources of light either. The increase in life was terribly significant to them. They marked it. You can imagine with only the light of the sun what a difference there would be between the long days of summer and the shorter, less intense days and light in winter. Does anybody here know in the traditional church calendar when John the Baptist's birthday is celebrated? June 24th, almost exactly six months after December 25th. Do you know why? That's when the days start to get shorter. Sorry to remind you of that. That's when the light begins to lessen each and every day. Every six months, as the seasons changed, the Israelites were reminded of this crucial fact. He must increase. He's born on December 5th and the light increases and I must decrease. We celebrate John the Baptist when the days start to become shorter. Today we're faced with the same choice that John the Baptist was. Jesus figuratively comes to us and says, follow me. Turn from your selfish agenda. Take on my plan for your life. Follow me and you will live the life you were made to live. Follow me. Jesus never said, receive me. Let me come in and join you in what you're doing. Let me receive me and let me join your agenda, your plans. He said, follow me. When we have a theology of receiving Jesus, we get to stay where we are. And God gets to come and join us. It's like home delivery. But when Jesus walked on this earth, he would look at men and women such as you and I, and he would say, no, not your agenda, God's agenda. Follow me. Come after me and I will make you fishers of men. God's on the move. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to get up from where we are and we have to leave everything and follow him too. That's what being a disciple and making disciples is all about. Will we allow Jesus to become greater and ourselves to become less? Let's take a moment to think about that. Will we allow Jesus to become greater and ourselves to become less? The transformation in you and me comes as we say yes to Christ, becoming more in us. In that, like for John, there is no greater joy than in encountering Jesus. And the sheer magnificence of having Christ in our life as we become less and he becomes more. Jesus comes and he's baptized by John as, as an act of surrender, an act of obedience, an act of humility. He's baptized by John. And when he comes up out of the water, the voice says, that's my son right there. I'm so well pleased with him. And then the Bible tells us that immediately after that, Jesus is led by the spirit out into the wilderness for a 40 day period, alone with his father, away from other people, preparing for the most radical ministry in the history of the world. But guess who slithers along behind? He tempts Jesus to be a different kind of savior, be a different kind of Messiah, than God's plan required. And he comes at Jesus relentlessly for the whole 40-day period when Jesus is there, trying to get him to walk away from God's plan, 
Get another agenda. Follow my agenda instead. Walk away from God's agenda. Defy God's plan. Do it this way. And he comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He's baiting Jesus to prove it. You're God. See these stones here on the desert floor? I know you're extremely hungry. Man, you've got to be famished. I know you can just do a little miracle here and turn them into loaves of bread. Just do it. And then you can eat and be full. And what's wrong with that? What's so bad about that idea? Was it wrong for Jesus to be hungry? No. Was it wrong for him to want something to eat? Absolutely not. Did he have the ability to turn stones into bread? Yes, he did. So... Frankly, what's the big deal here? Well, it's a big deal for two reasons. First, he's being tempted to use his abilities for selfish reasons. God didn't give Jesus miracle-working power just so he could serve himself and be comfortable. The devil doesn't mind you being good at things, if you think about it, as long as you just don't do it for God. You don't even have to do it for the devil, just do it for yourself. Second, it was also a temptation not to wait on God to meet his needs. In a nutshell, here's the temptation that we all face, just as Jesus did. Will we trust God to meet our needs, or will we rush to satisfy them on our own? God doesn't help those who help themselves. If you think that's in the Bible, you're mistaken. Ben Franklin said that. God helps those who trust him. Trust him at his word, even when things don't seem to make sense. Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying man hungers for more. There's a need for more in man's life than just food. He hungers for a relationship with God, and that's why I'm here. There's only one kingdom I'm interested in, and that's the kingdom of God. And I want to see that kingdom filled with all the people that God so desperately loves and wants to have community with. Listen to God. Listen to God's voice instead of listening to others. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him, a, set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of, the, of God, throw yourself down. And notice what he does here. Jesus has used scripture to respond. So now what does the sly devil do? He quotes scripture himself. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. In part, it's the temptation to abuse God's grace, to hold God hostage and say, God, if I go do this, you've got to protect me. Yeah, no, he doesn't. God is not your genie. You need to understand. You need to understand that that's not how God works. And then you go and do it. Whatever he asks you to do, that's faith. When you think up some goofy idea on your own and you go in and do it and then you expect God to help you out, that's an assumption. That's not faith. You've presumed that God would help you no matter what you did. Let's say I go out there today and borrow 75000 to buy a nice new truck to pull my fishing boat. But I get so in debt, I go, God, you've got to get me out of debt here. I would expect to hear God say to me, I didn't get you into debt. You're presumptuous. That's not faith. It's also in part, yet again, a temptation to draw attention to ourselves, to impress, to show off. Well, what's wrong with that, you say? What's wrong with Jesus receiving some attention, some glory? Was it wrong for him to get the applause and praise of men? Well, no. In fact, the Bible says the whole universe was created for the glory of God. And that one day we're all going to spend time 
bringing glory and praise to God. We got a little taste of it here this morning. And every knee is going to bow and every, knee is going to, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. But this wasn't God's plan. Not right now. It was the wrong way and the wrong time. God's plan was that Jesus would come to earth and get glory by dying on a cross. Not jumping off a building. One of them is to show off. The other is to sacrifice. One of them is spectacular. The other is sacrificial. Jesus didn't come to earth to show off, to do little miracles, to walk across Herod's pool or something like that. No, he came to sacrifice. Jesus said, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We must practice humility. We need look no further than John the Baptist for this attitude. Here's how he put it. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. And sandals back then were the dirtiest thing that you could carry. They had walked through all kinds of, of dirt and muck on the street all day, and the, the lowliest of servants would carry the sandals. And he says, this one who is coming is mightier, mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. God says, don't test me. Instead, humble yourself before me. And that's something you can choose to do. And again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdom of, kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. See all these kingdoms? I can give them all to you. Just one little teeny weensy little thing. Kind of just a little thing you need to do. Worship me. The political kingdoms, the entertainment kingdoms, the religious kingdoms. I'll give them all to you, Jesus. You just have to bow down. If you would just scrap this whole stupid plan of God to be the Lamb of God... Go to the cross, carry the sins of the people there. You could have it all now. You can avoid the cross altogether. Just follow me, worship me. You tried the low-key approach, the little stable in the manger thing. What did that get you? A few shepherds. And now 30 years later, the only guy who's out there promoting you at all is a wild-looking desert freak who eats grasshoppers. No one's listening to him. Let me promote you. I'll do such a better job. The people will follow you. You'll be a hero. Come on, Jesus. Be the type of Messiah the people that you came to save are expecting you to be. What do you say? And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, it's interesting here that Jesus doesn't even challenge Satan. He doesn't say, you don't even own the wealth of the world. What are you talking about? You can't even fulfill that promise to give that stuff to me. No, he just says, you should only worship God. The heart of this temptation is, do we value what the world has to offer us more than God and the eternal reward that he promises to us? You've got to decide. Do you worship the things of this world more than you worship God? Satan says, I'll give you everything. You'll have it made if you'll just sell your soul to me. And that's what temptation is. Selling yourself. In all three temptations, Jesus answers by quoting scripture. Even when Satan quoted scripture to him, which is an interesting endorsement of scripture if you think about it, Jesus quotes another scripture back. 
Why is he doing that? Well, he's modeling for us how to resist temptation. You don't resist temptation with your own opinions. You resist it by knowing what the Bible says and reminding yourself of that. So when he puts an idea, the, the slithering snake puts an idea in your mind, you say, yeah, no, the Bible says. Notice Jesus has these verses memorized. He didn't pull out his pocket Old Testament or his phone and say, hang on a second, I got it here somewhere. I know somewhere over here in the Bible, it says something like this. No, he knew exactly where it was and he knew exactly what it was and he quoted it. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but when you're tempted, there's just rarely a Bible handy. You don't carry them into the washroom or the movie theater or to, the, or to work unless you happen to work at a church, I mean, we're blessed, or to the game. No, when you're tempted, it's back sitting at home, looking very nice and pretty on the shelf. This is the sword of God. It's what you are to fight the enemy with. You just went into battle with a ruthless enemy and you left your sword at home. You need to have it memorized. You need to look at it as clearly as I can say it, if you're serious, very serious about God's purpose for your life, the most important thing you can do to avoid temptation, to handle temptation, to conquer temptation, the most important thing you can do to defeat temptation is to memorize some verses out of this book. If you get tempted regularly by anger, you need to memorize some verses on anger. If you get tempted regularly by being impatient or shooting off your mouth, then you need to memorize some verses on watching what you say. If you get regularly tempted by lust or jealousy or greed or pride or whatever, you need to think of and memorize some verses that have to do with that. So that when the devil puts an idea in your mind to temptation, you can go, nah, see, yeah, Here's what God says. It's, that's what Jesus did. The devil is not afraid in any way, shape, or, or form of your opinion. But he does fear the word of God because it's the truth. So memorize scripture. You say, I can't do that. <laughs> well, of course you can. You memorize, we all do, what's important to us. I know people who say, I can't memorize anything, and yet they'll quote me every hockey stat in the book. Every hole on the golf course and its length. All the stock quotes, the recipes, the phone numbers. We memorize, honestly, what's important to us. And the Bible says, when the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him. And now Luke puts this little phrase on the end that Matthew doesn't, but it's a really important little phrase. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. When do you think that was? Three years later in the Garden of Gethsemane? I don't, I don't think so. I think it was the next day. I think that he hammered Jesus his entire life. How do I know that? Because that's what he does to us. Just trying to get Jesus to be a different kind of savior. Just to be a different kind of Messiah. Just opt out of God's plan and do it a different way. All of his life. Come on, do things your own way. No one in their right mind would go to a cross and die for other people. They don't give a rip about you anyway. And then you know what? If that had been me, I'd probably have bailed on the whole plan of God. I have to go where? 
I don't have a flawless life, and I don't have a flawless character like Jesus did. But Jesus knew he was not sent to wow the people, to impress the people, to feed the people, or frankly, to rule the people like they thought. He knew he was sent to save the people from the separation from God that sin brings into our lives. And that meant going to a cross. There was no other way. And he knew that was ahead of him. And he went, the Bible says, resolutely towards the cross. He knew the ultimate income outcome, sorry. He knew that lots of trouble and rejection and humiliation and injustice and intense suffering was ahead for him. He could have chosen in his human nature to go another way. But honestly, there's one big, beautiful reason why he didn't. He couldn't because he had your face and my face on his mind. Nothing, nothing was going to stop our Savior, from going to the cross for you and for me. He never forgot that he was born to die for the sins of the world. And here's four questions that I have to ask you and I want you to consider. Take them home with you. They're in your notes. They'll be on the website as well. Take these homes with you. Talk about them with your, uh, the people you've come here with. Here's the four. What do I need to let go of before the king? We looked at this already. Make a list and then truly confess and repent. Will I allow Jesus to become greater and myself to become less? Will I be a Shawspan, a Shawspan, the friend of the groom? Will I make God the primary concern and worship of my life? Who's really first in my life? Lord, I'm living for your kingdom, not mine. I'm living for your purpose, not mine. Does it show? Would others agree with you? Will I dedicate my God-given abilities to serve God and making disciples rather than serving myself? How might I practically this week serve someone and encourage their walk with the Lord? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I believe you brought all the events of the last months to, to effect an end here, to start a new beginning. I believe you're in the process, Father, of raising up a new group of ordinary people right here. They're right in front of me. They're, on, they're right sitting in front of their TV right now. I believe you intend to use us to impact and change the world. And we come before you in that respect. And that makes the example of John and Jesus we're looking at today so pertinent to where we find ourselves, Father. We too must be, decide to be a part of this new beginning. We too must decide to become less so that you can become more. We too must resist the temptation to question your sufficiency, to question your sovereignty, to question your holiness. Jesus, we want to be an influence for good and for God. We ask you to mold us and shape us into the, into the image that you want us to be and to use us as your disciples anytime anywhere, anyhow, for your purpose. Help us to grow in maturity, to live with integrity, to use our time and money with priority to be a, a, a part of the great adventure that you are building, the building of your kingdom and making disciples of others. We come before you in repentance and once again, open our lives completely to you. Come in, take over, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 
1-800-273-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.